0: welcome to public health out loud public health for the public my name is dr philip chan on behalf of the rhode island department of health today we are talking about adolescent mental health we will hear from a documentary filmmaker the first on the podcast actually with more than 30 years experience he has been nominated for more than seven personal and program emmy awards and was awarded one editing emmy three program series Emmys and countless others, including an ACE Award for Best Edited Documentary 2015. He's here today to talk about his recent four hour documentary entitled Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness, which he co-produced along with Ken Burns, another famous documentarian. So Eric Ewers, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, it's an honor. So let's just start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Sure. Well, um, I have a running joke that my brother, if he was, uh, my brother, Chris, is a co-director. If he was sitting here, he'd roll his eyes. Uh, my, my running joke is I've been with Ken ever since the Civil War, which really just means ever since 1991, when the Civil War series, his one of his biggest films aired and kind of put him on the map. I just never looked back. I started working for him the day after I graduated from college And I just stuck with it for more than 30 years and um, served as an editor for almost all of his films um, in some capacity. And then my brother and I started a company, Ewers Brothers, and that was about 15 years ago. And while I was doing my day job with Ken editing, my brother and I were doing various kinds of programming and visual media at night, and Ken volunteered to get us more immersed in television production. And we eventually became directors and he uh, is now serving as an executive producer. So that's pretty much my life story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, as you can imagine, and as I mentioned, we don't have many filmmakers on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about, and we'll, in a second, we'll talk here about your recent hiding in plain sight, but talk to us a little bit about what it takes to make a film and specifically a documentary.
1: Sure. It's actually, people are surprised. It's almost like a disclaimer. I always have to say, I've learned to make films the Ken Burns way, which is an important distinction because Ken has a very fundamental sound belief that filmmaking needs to take its time. It needs to grow and evolve over time. So he gives us uh, on average for a two hour film about 18 months to make the film and about two and a half years total from starting that first day writing and researching to the very end. The goal with documentaries is very simple is to take as many different jigsaw puzzle pieces that being the the media that we find the stories that we find and all the research and from archival museums and um, institutions across the country and we try to bring it all together into a meaningful story. And one of the biggest principles that we follow is that history is the story of human emotion. Um, It's not just facts and figures and events that happened a long time ago, but there are human beings that went through those events and history has the word story in it. Another important point. So we kind of focus on the emotional storytelling of history and we, As we've learned in this recent film, history can be a few years ago. It could be yesterday, and it could be 100 years ago. So it still applies to a, a modern-day
0: subject like mental health. And how many of these have you done before? How many documentaries have you worked on? Ooh, With Ken serving
1: as an editor, I'd say 25 to 30 films from the baseball series to jazz, to Jack Johnson, the first heavyweight black boxer, Mark Twain, country music, the national parks, could go on and on. The first one I directed, -directed co-directed with my brother for Ken was a film on the Mayo Clinic, which was really about what medicine and what healthcare should be to the patient, because this institution called the Mayo Clinic has its start in the wilderness, in the frontier land in the mid-1800s. So it really developed its own model of care, which um, is just incredible and still is today. So that was in 2015. And then we were asked to make this first youth mental health film.
0: And let's talk about that now, called Hiding in Plain Sight. What was the motivation behind this?
1: Well, you know, there's two, two versions of that. One is much less romantic. We were asked to, (laughs) basically. We found out, Ken does this, which I love. I found out secondhand that we were going to be making this film from people who were at a meeting in DC and said, wow, you guys are going to be making this film on mental illness. And my brother and I are like, what? Really? And then, of course, we found out. But the other part of it is, you know, I'm 55. I grew up knowing nothing about mental illness. I was never taught it. I was never educated on the topic in school or, but the bottom line was my brother and I both knew instinctively that there was something amiss in our own family and in our lives growing up. And once we got into the film, we learned as much about these new young people who are in the film, we learned about ourselves as well, which was remarkable.
0: Well, mental health especially is really one of the number one public health priorities in this country. It's something that we don't do very well. Uh, it's something that we need to do better, intersects a lot of other important things like substance use, like sexual health, like just uh, education and and growing up in general. So thank you first off for covering this. And let's talk a little bit about what you learned and what our listeners should know about this. I think one thing that you mentioned uh, in the film is that 75% of mental illness uh, begins before the age of 25, 50% before the age of 14. Was this a shock to you? What did you find out during the filming here?
1: So was this a shock to me? Yes and no. Yes, it was a shock at first, but I think the, the, the magic of storytelling is you always put yourself in the situation that uh, of the story you're hearing. That's why we go to feature films. I don't want necessarily to fight in a war but I can go and watch a film and imagine what I would, what, how I would feel fighting in that war. Um, It's kind of the same thing. So yes, it was shocking, but I also immediately, my learning curve just got underway that day when I thought, wow, that's really bad. Then I thought about all the things that I went through as a young person um, that suddenly appeared like visions that I had forgotten Um, crying in the basement by myself, listening to a song on a record player for hours, not a normal activity for a young kid. Um, So it immediately started piquing my interest. Wow, have have I been suffering all these years? So that's really kind of the foundation of that fact and statistic.
0: During the course of your research here, did you get a sense of of the why, why is the burden of mental health so high in adolescence is it is it increasing? Is it you know there's been a lot in the media about social media and about you know uh, perhaps loss of community. Is there anything that you can point to that this has been uh, attributed to? Sure, I
1: am not surprised that it it manifests at that age. It's a tough enough age to begin with dealing with peer pressure and bullying and negotiating your way socially and intellectually into an adult world from a child's world. So first of all, that right off the bat, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But the big thing we learned from our experiences interviewing 23 young people from across the country of all different ages, diversities, cultural backgrounds, we discovered that one of the most common traits is trauma. Um, However big or small, it, it's um, as Patrick Kennedy, the leading mental health advocate in the country says, you know, people tend to say, well, it's not that bad about themselves. Well, compared to who? It's a very internal personal illness that is based upon how your mind reacts to things, not how your friends or your neighbors. So um, I think there are some kids who can get through trauma relatively intact and can, can grow from it. There are others who it comes back and it haunts them. And by Tom Insel, the former uh, director of the National Institute of Mental Health says in our film, it's, it can be like a cancer, it, it, it can metastasize if it's not addressed. Um, so those early years, the early detection, early intervention theory uh, behind um, addressing mental health challenges is critical. And as I'm sure most of your audience would agree, that just doesn't happen. And for my generation and some generations before me and certainly after me, you didn't see it when, when you were going through it.
0: Uh, I, you interviewed 23 young people from across the country. What was the story that stuck out to you most? What was a, uh, the one that resonated most with you?
1: Tough question. They all resonated in different ways with me. We kind of call the film a tapestry of human lived experience that pretty much anyone who encounters it will find some aspects of themselves in these stories. And um, it's just a remarkable statement on humanity. I think for me personally, um, a young woman in the film named uh, McKaylin, African-American woman from West Virginia, her story albeit her father and my father are completely different people and different experiences, but the way she reacted to the trauma in her life was very close to mine. So I think that personal connection was there. But I would say the biggest, the two biggest people in the film that made an impact on me, one was 11 years old, his name McLean from Billings, Montana. And he actually had to convince his parents to let him be in this film his parents said nope absolutely not and they'll tell you this right now they said that because they were afraid of the stigma that would be brought upon their son in their very conservative community and he was like nope i got to do this you don't understand i want to help people if i can help someone not go through the things i've i've been going through then I have to do this. Um, And the other was this um, young kid, Xavier, young African-American and Native American boy from El Paso, Texas, who was adamant about, he was still very iffy if he wanted to do uh, the interview. So we gave him all the breathing space he needed and said, you know, we'll even take you out later if you change your mind. But he had an epiphany during his interview where he was finally willing to talk about the physical abuse that he received um, as a child from a family member. And I was told it was off topic by him, but he brought it up on his own. And his therapist um, and his mom, who were at the interview, he was 14. They both cried with me afterwards and said, this is the first time he's finally owned the trauma. He's never outwardly admitted to the trauma. And here he is doing it in front of what would become millions of viewers. And at the very end, when we were finishing the film, I said, you know, we reached out and said, you good? And he goes, I just want to help people. Again, you know, they're heroes, these, these 23 young people. They've shared their darkest moments and their biggest and brightest accomplishments to show, you know, that you can get through this.
0: And I'm reminded too, one of the things that's so humbling, I think, as a physician uh, is that I walk into that exam room, right? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with this person for 15 or 20 minutes. And within the first five minutes, I really need to make that bond and that connection and really to get yes. to make the person comfortable, right? So they can share all that deep, dark stuff with me so that I can, that I can best help them. And I think too, what's also very humbling uh, and unfortunate, I think, is that the the stuff that you're talking about is is so common and is often right below the surface for so many people and uh, I guess I'm just reminded of that too, as I interact with people on a daily basis is that so many people are dealing with this, are dealing with some of the trauma that you're mentioning, which is why it's important to do what you're doing, which is to destigmatize this, to talk about this to uh to get people help, frankly, to make people comfortable just about. Uh, talking about it now, Eric. Let me ask you this: Are you from Are you from Rhode Island?
1: Where are you from? I'm, at, I'm actually from New Hampshire. I grew up in Massachusetts for half my life and spent the rest here in New Hampshire.
0: So there's also a story uh, in the film uh, from Rhode Island. Tell us about correct. That. Correct.
1: Um, it's it's an incredible story. Um, it's it's a very hard one, but it's also a very beautiful one. Um, and it's a story of uh, Rick Bruno and his son, Nate, from Portsmouth, Rhode Island. We, we typically don't have um, last names in the film, but this one was an exception for the right reasons. But Rick starts his story, um, Rick is father to Nate, and says, um, and I don't remember the date, but I believe it was March of 2018, my son died of suicide in in my home. And we started his story with that statement because it's not about the suicide. The story is about how and what came out of it. No parent wants this to happen, no parent wants their child to suffer. But once you experience it in your own home, you feel an overwhelming compulsion to get in, get involved, and help prevent others from having the same thing happen or or help your children. It, it's a story of Portsmouth, Rhode Island. And it's basically the story of how his son, who had no symptoms or signs of any kind of mental illness whatsoever, got himself into this situation. And it's also the story of some of his best friends who, again, it's their experience that matters because it's a film on youth mental illness his friends some of which you don't even know are his friends till the very end they give us all the context around this unfortunate event and they were as shocked as Nate's father was and they they talk about how the school didn't know what to do that they they were only a step or two short of almost denying any kind of involvement or responsibility um, after the fact. And it angered these young people so much that his death empowered them to make sure this never happens again. Um, They banded together and they created something that changed Rhode Island forever. They actually passed legislation in the state of Rhode Island and we filmed it, which was so beautiful, requiring all teachers to have a certain amount of education on seeing the warning signs of suicidal ideation. I believe it's not just the teachers, but everyone who works in a school has to have this training. And uh, it makes up for a lot that should have happened, but didn't happen in the school system. And uh, it also, they had formed an organization that was dedicated to raising awareness in young people in the schools, so they could also see these warning signs. Um, but it's, it's a really incredible story. It needs to be told. As uh, Colin, who is one of Nate's friends says in the film, we didn't want to lose Nate. He said, but if, if it wasn't him, it would have been someone else. So it doesn't change anything. We, we need to do this, we need to, to have better awareness of suicidal ideation in our school systems where we spend as
0: almost as much time as we do at home. Did you find, I, I mean, you mentioned that, uh, that one of your uh, folks here was a little bit iffy. I mean, did you find that it was difficult to find people to do this in general? Did you find that it was difficult for people to open up in front of the camera and share these sort of very sensitive stories? We
1: expected it would be a nightmare. We expected that at the beginning that it would be so problematic that we might have to change the design and intent of our film, which was to empower young people to give them their own voice because they are after all the experts of their own experience. Um, And that's what this film was all about. We started by interviewing experts and by our third or fourth expert, my brother and I were just talking and I said, this isn't getting anywhere. Um, This is an educational video, and this is not, they're important, the experts, to provide context. But the real heart of the matter, if if you're assigned to do a film on youth mental illness, you got to go to the youth. And um, we fanned out across the country, um, used a lot of connections, and it was kind of like going from a plane at 30,000 feet, slowly descending until we landed the plane and were on the front lines and talking with people who are right there, helping these young people and the young people themselves who I learned that hopefully if you can weather the storm of mental health challenges, that you get to the point where you see the clouds clearing and you realize that talking is the best panacea. It's not a cure, but it, it's restorative, it's cathartic, and it helps and um it helps you heal in some ways. And these kids, whether they realized it or not, had gotten to the point where there was an ownership in what they were struggling with. And by accepting and owning it, they started to speak out about it. And that voice got louder and louder as they felt better and better. Um and they taught me. Uh, I never talked about the stuff I went through. And now I'm an open book And because they empowered me to address and confront. And I, I got to be honest with you, they were their stories and their love and their bravery is so powerful that I'm proud to say that the past four years, my mental health journey has been very, very difficult. I have been through a lot. I've had a few mental breakdowns. And it was all personal, had nothing to do with making the film, but it opened up a lot of things that I had probably would have been willing to deal with, but just didn't know. And now I am such a better person for it. I feel great. Um, I still like the rest of the kids. I still have struggles here and there, but I'm so much more prepared and understand how to deal with them.
0: And, you know, the story that you're sharing just to let our listeners know is so common. I mean, just during the course of my career as a primary care physician, I mean, it's it's normal for people to go through these highs and lows, right? This is part of life. And sometimes the lows, you know, can get pretty low and sometimes people need help. And so I certainly encourage folks, if they're listening, that if they are going through one of those points to reach out to a healthcare provider, to talk about it with their doctor and just to reassure people that that is normal for sure, Ab- uh, especially in kids.
1: Absolutely. It, it's it's as simple a fact as if you fall and you break your leg, you go to a doctor and get it fixed. It's a natural assumption because your leg's not going to work well if you don't. Your brain is a part of your body. It controls emotions just because your brain has, and you know, I put it in quotes, you can have traumatic brain injury you know from an actual physical contact you know something like that but it's an organ in your body that you need to take care of no different than your heart or your kidney or, or your liver you have to take care of it to be well and it's just because it's connected with personality and emotion that we stigmatize it and it's all of a sudden different but it is literally the same thing you go you get on medication if your doctor thinks that will help alleviate symptoms and then you start creating new pathways in your brain to learn how to process that which you could never process before or had so much difficulty in processing to me now it seems as natural as going and getting a physical or you know checking with my doctor on my um my cholesterol, it's, it's no different.
0: And I want to go back to something that we touched on just very briefly in the beginning, uh, and that's the contribution of social media. I feel a little bit old saying this, but, you know, we're growing up in a very different world. Kids are growing up in a very different world than we did. Now I'm 45 this year. I think you mentioned that you were in your fifties. One of the quotes in your film was a quote, uh, my phone has my whole life in it. If I lost it, I think I would die. And uh, I mean, I feel that way, you know, <laughs> given my work, et cetera. But another part of that, too, was that we live in a world full of toxicity. And I think that that really struck me. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that we're not certain about in this world. There's climate change. You know, we're hearing about wildfires and hurricanes and there's wars raging uh, Asia and Europe there. And I guess uh, just the contribution of social media to this is you know, it's been in the news a little bit, but did you get the sense that social media or any other sort of technology that we have today contributes to uh, this burden of mental health that may not been present when we were young, when we were kids?
1: Absolutely. It's it's interesting. My then teenage daughter was the one who came up. I said, "What what what's one of your most common phrases that you would say about the importance of your phone? And she she actually wrote all those out. And actually, I tried to change the language because the reply was same with a, a upside down frown face, you know, emoji. And and I tried to change it. And she's like, no, do not change it. Kids are not going to relate to what you just wrote. They're going to relate to what I wrote. But wow, it, it's such a radioactive thing. The biggest thing we learned, and we have a chapter in the film on social media. It's one of the longest chapters because the kids told us it's one of the most important things to talk about. The, the shock was that out of 23 young people, 23 of them thought social media was a bad thing. They all said, I hate it to some degree, but I have to do it. I not only have to do it, I contribute to it. And I know, but the consequences of not being a part of Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or Tumblr or any of the other ones you actually ostracize yourself you alienate yourself isolate yourself and, and so they all feel this compulsion which is almost kind of kind of close to that word addiction where you just become dependent upon it and we, what we tried to do in the film was look and listen to the kids about the bad things um everything from cyberbullying one of our Young people, uh, she was 13 when we interviewed her, Ava, she um, tried to take her own life because of cyberbullying. And it's a very serious matter. Kids take it very much to heart. Uh, Yadia, who's actually in her mid-20s, she said, I actually think Tumblr and Facebook brought me up. She said, "I, I, I don't think I would have a social life without them the kids said how much they were annoyed and really disliked social media, but they also said, some of them said that's where they found solace um, when they didn't or couldn't find solace elsewhere for their mental health struggles. There were chat groups or there were YouTube videos of people who talked about how they were dealing with substance abuse or with depression. Um, Sometimes it wasn't how they were dealing. It was just, they were just letting it out uh, that spirit of talking and it spoke to them. So it, there's pluses and minuses. And then, you you know, we get the experts and I don't necessarily disagree, but they're like, we have the most powerful tool for mental health. And it's in the palm of your hand. It's a cell phone and that you there's telehealth and there's AI models that are, tr- that are being developed to identify through your, your language, potential mental health symptoms or, uh, you know, leading towards some sort of diagnosis. So It's just a huge, huge complicated thing. And there's really no answer.
0: I mean, this is a really important topic to me personally, as well as public health wise. I have a 16 year old and a 12 year old. And, you know, I tried to delay social media as long as possible. You know, it's like getting that cell phone for your kids. I mean, eventually it's a losing battle because every other kid has it. uh, And you want to make sure they don't feel left out. And the other right. thing too, I think during the pandemic, it was, you know, with all the isolation, the physical isolation going on, I found that the kids were using, you know, social media and phones much more, which I feel like they kind of had to, right? Because uh, they weren't actually, you know, going over to their friend's house during those one or two years that pandemic was going on. So I've tried to personally, as a physician parent, I've tried to treat this as I would something like, uh, like vaping or substance use or sexual health meaning ongoing discussions and treating it like a serious topic that it is, right? And, you know, educating my kids and, you know, trying to teach them of the dangers. But I think to your point too, especially during the pandemic, there is a role for this. And it's, it's difficult to have the kids, you know, left off of social media when all their friends are on it. So I do, do feel like it's kind of one of those, you know, one of those balances and there may not be a right or wrong answer here.
1: Yeah, the, the only thing that comes to mind that kind of came close to how I wished <laughs> I wished I dealt with it with my children, but um, it's it was a little late. Dr. Sarah Vinson in the film says uh, she's a psychiatrist. She said, you know, when young people use something as a coping mechanism, and I do think cell phone use, um, social media is a form of coping mechanism because you're trying to You're constantly trying to identify who you wished you were, not necessarily who you are. Um, Sometimes you you might share with friends, but typically you're, you know, I want to look the best. I want to be in the best situation. Look at me. I'm at this concert. But she said, if you don't replace that coping mechanism with something else, they're just going to keep going back to it. And so the challenge is how do you get your kids to to part ways with their phone for a certain amount of time and do something that gives them that same kind of satisfaction or good feelings, if you will, uh, you know, in themselves. And we used to go out and play in the yard, you know, and, and be out in nature, if you will. I don't think we looked at it that way, but that's what it was. And they just don't have that. And... So yeah, it's not going to be answered for a while, but at least acknowledging that there's a problem, you know, change comes from the outside and works its way in. It never comes from the center and works its way out. So I got to believe that the growing awareness of, of cell phones with, with young people and the consequences of social media will start something. Yeah, I wish I had the answer too. We're both in the same boat.
0: You hope that audiences will learn from this film. Is there a, a, a takeaway from the project?
1: Yes, there's two that i that immediately come to mind um one, and the narrator says this at the beginning of the film to me, it's almost like that that opening statement in an essay where you're gonna go then go and prove it it was but but the first and often most difficult step is to simply start talking about it that talking is the best medicine, and yet it, it you can't really. Engage in getting help if you don't open up to someone. You don't start sharing how you feel, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a doctor, a primary care physician. I, I relied on my primary care physician heavily at, at age, you know, fifty-two when I was going through a lot, and he he really helped me get set up where I needed to be set up. So talking, and then the other is a much more philosophical thing, but it, it is genuine. And that is, like you said, that mental health challenges or mental illness is is a part of life. It is that simple. We all, they say one in four, um, if you include substance abuse, have mental illness in America, if not the whole world. I would argue it's four in four. Just some people need more help getting out of the rut that they're in because they don't know how to, just like any other health issue. So I I think that in mind, I believe that almost anyone who watches this film will a hear remarkable stories of hardship and and recovery and wellness. Um, There's a very beautiful ending to this film. But you also will learn about yourself. You will see yourself. It's our human nature to hear stories and place ourselves in it imagine. It's how we relate. It's why we love telling stories to each other. And I think these these young people just ended up providing the perfect recipe for all people in America. Like I said before, all backgrounds, all cultures, all races, genders. There's such a perfect balance that I think everyone can find themselves. And And in doing so, you maybe for the first time can see what you haven't been able to see, and you know, I like to say the film's a conversation starter. Whether it's a conversation with yourself internally, or whether it's with someone you trust, and um, I hope that the film provides an actual service to people. And um, if if you're out there and you're you you're not happy with your way your life's going or your children, I encourage you to sit down with them. You can watch this Hiding in Plain Sight on Amazon Prime. It's there if you just search for it. Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness. It's also on pbs.org and your local PBS stations. You can access it that way through streaming. But it's hard. Don't get me wrong. You, You got to experience the darkness in order to understand what it's all about. It's not a pretty topic. It's not a happy topic, but it affects all of us. So if you get that opportunity to endure the darkness with our young people in the film and be patient. And by episode two, there's two episodes each two hours long by episode two, it's called resilience episode two, that when you get there, you're going to follow their path um, to wellness with an extreme appreciation of how hard it was to get there. And that's called learning. That's called growing. And I strongly encourage people to sit down with their kids. We have an 11-year-old in there. You know, I would suggest anyone who's preteen and above. Friends have told me, and some people wrote letters to me and said that their kids actually opened up for the first time after watching it and talked about their issues in school and bullying and sex and, you know, dating and all of those things in a way that they never imagined their children would. They're, they all wanna talk. It's a younger generation thing and it's wonderful. And I think
0: they hold the power to making a difference in the future. And just to uh, highlight and double check, uh, you mentioned that you could access or watch Hiding in Plain Sight on Amazon Prime and PBS? Correct. Wonderful. Well, Eric Ewers, uh, co-director of Hiding in Plain Sight. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And on behalf of the state of rhode island thank you for all you do and if any of our listeners out there know of anyone who is struggling with mental illness please do get in touch with your primary care provider uh, often a good first resource if you need urgent help you can contact the suicide and crisis lifeline by calling or texting 988 or visiting 988lifeline.org if you or any of your loved ones are in need of crisis support there's another great resource here in the state of Rhode Island called BH Link. You can access it through bhlink.org or you can actually visit it 24 hours a day here in the state of Rhode Island, located at 975 Waterman Ave in East Providence. So in closing, I want to thank uh, Erica Collins, our executive producer, and Carol Stone, our technical director. I also want to thank our guest again, Eric Ewers. Thank you again for sharing your experience and making this very relevant film. Thank you for all that you're doing uh, in that space. I am Dr. Philip Chan signing off on behalf of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all and be well.